0: This is potentially catastrophic. I have a whole stack of books to read. Joy Harjo's Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. Venice by Jan Morris. Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. Romeo and Juliet. And there's a whole bunch of books I read before. It's from the 1st of March 2016. From the 27th of April. 27th of July. So I guess the only thing to do is see how the books speak to each other. Okay. Oh, brilliant. This is probably going to get weird. All right. Uh, Good morning. Well, good morning for me. Welcome to episode nine. Um, Today, excuse me, I'm a bit belty. I do not know why. All right. So today, I'm reading, Ooh, I'm going to try that again. Today I am reading Romeo and Juliet. Um, I am in a Shakespeare reading group. We are reading this for our meeting this month, um, partly because we are um, getting ready for Shakespeare Festival St. Louis's um, presentation in the Glen of Romeo and Juliet. So it'll be on this summer for about a month um, in Forest Park. and we're all sort of looking forward to it. I think this was the first play that they did and so they're revisiting it. This will be, you know, 17 years later. Um, It's a good one for for the crowds, you know, for the families. Uh, People know it. Well, they think they know it. We've read this before and, you know, the thing that we all sort of talked about is how little we actually knew about the play. You know the story there's the fame there are famous lines, not the famous lines you know, but there are well-known lines and people have conversations about that wherefore isn't where, it is why so. Um, people argue on Tumblr about wonderful things like uh, the relevance of their youth, um, which I think is fascinating because There is a theory that suggests that part of the reason that Juliet and Romeo are so young is to do with a common sort of dig at um, Italians for being somewhat licentious is a an appropriate word for it but you know for for being thoughtless with their children's bodies and um, uh, making them be Adults before they're ready for it, so it's it's a comment on it, potentially potentially a comment on um, the irresponsibility of of uh, Italians in general, um, and when it comes to the age of their children when they get married, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. Um, there's it's a it's such a hot-headed play uh, in so so many ways. I mean the the action takes place in late July. Um, it is in Italy. There are constant mentions of the weather. I mean, the day that Mercutio is killed by Tybalt and then Tybalt is killed by Romeo, it, it they actually say the day is hot. Um, we're, we're probably going to get into a fight, which I, I find really um, kind of fun. I mean, I think that that's... One of the things that Baz Luhrmann's movie really did was just, my God, that movie, it makes you sweat watching it. And not just because Harold Perrineau is a snack, and also the best Mercutio, um, but just because it's so oppressively hot. There is heat coming off of everything. And in film, you know, you can you can do that. Um, because the production here in St. Louis will be outside on a stage, it will be hot. Uh, I think that that will translate pretty well also, so I'm I'm genuinely looking forward to it. Um, It looks like it has a really good cast, so this will be fun. But I was thinking about Mercutio is obviously the best character in the play that isn't Friar Lawrence, who is incredibly cynical for being a person of faith. I mean, I expect that you have to be when you, you are attempting to do good work in a place that is just filled with people who do not think through the things that they do, including the Duke, P.S., or the Prince. because Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it is a play of emotion, which I find the Prince, um, I find really incredible. Um, but here, Acts 3, Scene 1, Mercutio has this wonderful takedown of Benvolio, who is trying to um, get him to go inside. Um, the day is hot, the Capulets abroad, and if we meet, we shall not scape a brawl. Mercutio responds several lines later, Nay, and there were two such. We should have none shortly, for one would kill the other. Thou? Why, thou wilt quarrel with a man that hath a hair more or a hair less in his beard than thou hast. Thou wilt quarrel with a man for cracking nuts, having no other reason but because thou hast hazel eyes, What eye but such an eye would spy out such a quarrel? Thy head is as full of quarrels as an egg is full of meat, and yet thy head hath been beaten as addle as an egg for quarreling. Thou hast quarreled with a man for coughing in the street, because he waked thy dog that hath lain asleep in the sun. Didst thou not fall out with a tailor for wearing his new doublet before Easter, with another for tying his new shoes with old ribbon, and yet thou wilt tutor me from quarreling?" Brilliant stuff. I'm gutted that Mercutio doesn't make it, although I understand why. Okay, so, 17th of August, 2016, is the book I am gonna guess. It's probably M.K. Jemisin. It is! It is The Obelisk Gate. Okay, this was published by Orbit Books in 2016. Oh, God, I have no idea how these two are gonna relate. Okay. Um. Oh. See. We'll see. So, this is from page 83. Um, I have, I pronounce orogeny, orogeny. For those of you who have read the books, you'll understand why that matters. Um, it is an uncommon word, although it is a word in our contemporary English that refers to um, seismic study and abilities. I don't know the exact definition. Okay. The orogeny has cleared Nassen's head of necessity. It is a survival mechanism. Intense stimulation of the sessipine is usually accompanied by a surge of adrenaline and other physical changes that prepare the body for flight or sustained orogeny if that is needed. In this case, it brings an increased clarity of thought, which is how Nassen... How do I say this? finally realizes that her father was not hysterical over her fall purely for her sake, and that what she sees in his eyes right now is something entirely different from love. Her heart breaks in this moment, another small quiet tragedy amid so many others, but she speaks because in the end she is her mother's daughter, and if Essen has done nothing else, she has trained her little girl to survive. There are poems in this about the respect of the reader facing such a work as this. If I read it fewer than three times, I am not sure that I can feel I've done honor to the extraordinary amount of work that led to this. And this book shows much of work, of the work of learning, of staying alive, of surviving and negotiating and discovering and waiting for much to get clear and searching for clarity where there are only surprises and fog. The stillness has a longer, more fractured history than anyone could possibly keep in living memory, and Alabaster and Asan both struggle with the kind of distance and comprehension that makes people think of them as crazy, because who can possibly think or speak as they do in the real world? Even though, as we and they are reminded, this is a season. Normal is at best temporary, at worst a dangerous illusion. It is heartbreaking to see the girl Nasson losing all semblance of the possibility for a happy life. Jemison does not really give her the sense of a long future, only the knowledge that there will be a tomorrow, and it will be worse than today. In this book, she gives us more magic, more lyrical moments of transcendence, and with them, more of a sense of loss that all life has not felt this beauty and possibility. Um, That it has simply been waiting for the next catastrophe and the next, and it is only possible to grow so much in between. Love, love, love. Um... One of the brilliant things about Jemison's books that I will say again is that um, almost every response that I have to her work is in poetry. Like it, her writing is specific to, well, that's not the way to put it. the rhythms that she chooses for characters and the ways that they process Nassim begins this book as a a a younger girl I mean she she when she when we end the book I think she's barely nine maybe ten um but so the 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 awarenesses come at the pace that it would for a child in a way right like as an adult we tend to think of of childhood almost as um as a dream state where things are very strange but or or disconnected or without context but they keep happening anyway and there's really nothing we can do to control it and and so when people write childhood well when they write from a child's perspective well it's usually to do with a matter of fact approach to incredibly strange seeming things or disconnected seeming events or words that come from other people. Um, adults are deeply strange beings. Um, the dedication to this book is to those who have no choice but to prepare their children for the battlefield. Um, I, the connection between them, or I shouldn't say the connection, but the relationship of you know, the Capulets and the Montagues willingly, willingly created a battlefield because of their own inability to not do that work, right? To just not. Um, and and their children died on it. And their, their extended family died on it. Um, and there was loss just all around. Nothing, nothing. There's nothing going forward for these people. There's nothing... There's nothing to hold on to Um, and they have done this willingly, right? I mean, willingly. Um, And in the Obelisk Gate, you know, you have parents who, in communities that are not willingly choosing to create a battlefield but they are willingly teaching their children how to survive on it and that is not a rich loving easy set of things to teach um and there is something i mean nasan is I have no idea how to pronounce her name, so it's going to be pronounced in a bajillion different ways. Nassen is so young, and her relationship with her mother, as we find out, is just, it's incredibly fraught. Um, and and even so, there's still a, a very real, I mean, you are aware as a reader of how much Essam loves her daughter. Um, in as much as she is able, which is not much, comparatively. So, as Nasan deals with the world as it is now, which is broken and fatal, um, she clings to the one person that she loves, that she believes loves her. And as her choices have consequences and as the choices of the people around her have consequences, you see that shift. Um, and, and in many ways, her story is and isn't a tragedy. I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about because I know the end of it. Well, not the end of it. I know the end of the, of the trilogy. Um, but yeah, when this came out um, that summer, oh, yeah. I mean, I just, I devoured it. And I think that's another sort of odd connection or relationship between these two stories is that I think that they get read really quickly. Like Romeo and Juliet, because it's always presented as an adapted work. I mean, it's, which I totally get. Um, You know, it's a play. It is, it's written for entertainment. If something is in it that is not entertaining, do not include it. Plain and simple. Um... And because the text is so old, we have the right to, not the right, but there's nobody stopping us from doing that, which is a whole other conversation. Anyway, um, and I think The Obelisk Gate, like it's really, it's really, really easy to read these books very quickly. And I never, you know, I don't want to. I want to go back and read them again and again and again. And so I do. And I end up talking about them a lot. Um, And I think Romeo and Juliet in many ways is the same way. I think that that's probably true for the Scottish play and for Hamlet um, and other, you know, frequently performed works that, that, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is another one and Much Ado, um, that people don't, well, that the, the reading of the text is not necessarily like encouraged. Um, which I think is a shame because I think that there's there's a lot more to see. There's a lot more humor. Um, there's a lot more frustration. There's a lot more to consider in terms of how these young people's emotions go from superficial to real. You know the consequences of the decisions that they've made and what that translates to um, for them emotionally before it translates into their untimely deaths. Um, yeah, I I, I recommend rereading it. We use, um, so the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, did re-edits of the play and Modern Library published them and they come in these really beautiful, um, individual paperbacks that have these matching sort of design spines, so our bookshelves all look very lovely. But, um, one of the reasons that we enjoy them as a group is that there are There's an introductory material, of course, um, but at the at the end of the play, there's also like a scene-by-scene analysis, so that if it's a very complicated plot, you can sort of check in in prose. Um, And then they do—they usually have 30 to 50 pages of conversations with directors and actors who have either produced, directed, or performed in these plays, and and that really helps, particularly for um, people who aren't Shakespearean experts, like we are amateurs, um, and, and that sort of gives us more more to play with. Um, okay, so uh, today's books were Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare and The Obelisk Gate, book two in the Broken Earth trilogy by M.K. Jemisin. Thanks y'all, I will see you tomorrow. That's all for today. Be sure to tune in tomorrow to see what kinds of nonsense I get up to then. Shop local, support your local library, and keep your bookshelves brave. Thank you so much for listening. Bye now.